We're hearing lots about the carbon tax and the cost to farmers. They will feel it not just in the fuel they use, but also in the prices for things that are emissions intensive to manufacture, like fertilizer. We're hearing less about what a price on carbon might mean for those that capture or sequester carbon, which might also be an opportunity for farmers. In this episode, I talked to two researchers from the Department of Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph about what carbon pricing means for farmers, what we know and what remains to be figured out. My name is Mike Von Masso and this is the Food Focus Podcast. Aaron Delaporte is a senior research associate and Dan Sherman is a graduate student. Both work on environmental policy and carbon pricing. We talk about both the cost and potential revenue implications for farmers of carbon pricing. It's worth a listen. If you'd like to read in a little more detail, you can check out their blog post on foodfocusguelph.com where they write about many of the topics that we're talking about today. But now let's get straight to our conversation. Aaron and Dan, it's uh, great to see you, if only virtually. We're, uh, you know, usually seeing each other in the halls at the department. Thanks for taking the time, uh, and I look forward to our conversation. So I wanted to start by 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 sort of covering a little bit about how, before we talk about what what it means for farmers, how does the carbon tax or other carbon policy uh, affect farmers both directly and indirectly? So I think that there are two different sort of effects that we can look at for farmers uh, regarding the carbon tax and carbon policy. So on one hand, you definitely have this increased input cost. So as you increase a carbon price, the price on fuel, the price on nitrogen fertilizer, these kinds of inputs uh, are inevitably going to increase. But then we also see count on the other side, we see that uh, there's the possibility of farmers really being engaged in carbon service provision. So whether that be through sequestration or uh, just reducing the sort of emissions that are happening on farm, we see this possibility for farmers to perhaps collect uh, benefits for adopting certain practices and or just straight up selling uh, carbon equivalents on carbon markets that are sort of developing throughout the world and in Canada at the time. Okay, so so I'm going to cover both of the things you just talked about. Uh, the first one was just the higher cost of inputs, and that that goes for you know fuel prices are going up, uh, and sort of sort of there is a, an explicit tax. There's also sort of a a cost for carbon generation for large facilities like fertilizer plants, so that, it, that there's not only going to cost them more to put fuel in the tractor and the combine and all those things. Also, those inputs are going to increase just because, A, there's fossil fuels used in their production, but B, also uh, this, this, this cost on large emitters. Is that, is that reasonably accurate? Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. You have yeah the carbon tax directly inputting um, affecting the fuels that farmers use. And then you also have this kind of output um, output based pricing system on large emitters. Um, those are emitters who emit over fifty thousand tons of um, carbon dioxide every year, and that would be like a fertilizer company. And those prices tend to get passed on to farmers, and that would kind of be more of your indirect impact on farmers. 
So, so as my under my my understanding uh, of the carbon tax of the carbon component of the carbon tax is that I pay for fuel for natural gas to heat my house and all of that. I pay more because there's now the carbon tax, but in theory, I get most of that back on income tax. Uh, where does 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 that happen for farmers as well? And is it just because they are large users of fuel? that that doesn't balance or or because you know i hear farmers com, uh, express concerns about things like particularly grain drying but also passes over the field and things like that are they getting the same credit and it's just not as much as what they spend or how does that work it's a good question mike um my interpretation of it and so sort of it, i guess is a little bit more surface level than i would like but if you have the ability to uh, alter your taxes in different ways as a farm, it, it, it changes the maximization equation on your taxes. And I'm not sure if you get the same benefit from that sort of um, that tax back system than having to pay up front. That's sort okay. of my initial impression. I'm not a hundred, like not being a farm tax accountant at this yep. point, especially with the way that rules are uh, sort of coming in and, and we're sort of testing them out. I'm not a hundred percent sure how that'll, how, how that'll break out, but that would be my concern, I guess, moving forward. Okay. So, so, so then that, that remains to be seen. We know that the carbon tax exists now and that it's ramping up every year so that the cost, the costs are going to get higher. So we're going to see farmers squeezed, uh, they're price takers in the market. So unless the market starts to reflect higher costs across the world, uh, we're going to see farmers squeezed. But you talked about the opportunity to sell sort of carbon credits or or other other carbon services. Are those initiatives as fully formed yet or are they sort of still to come and is that why we're getting maybe this tension where farmers aren't feeling like they're uh, getting a fair deal here i think there's a yeah i think it's very fair right now ontario i kind of think 2018 they were part of um some of the large emitters were part of this kind of emissions trading scheme with quebec and california and they backed out of that cap and trade program and they kind of say there's going to be one coming in the future. And while they're kind of trying to pencil out what that looks like, farmers aren't being paid for some of the practices that they maybe could be. And there's no opportunities yet. So in the next several years before some of these programs or carbon markets kind of start to unfold, farmers are kind of you know being held in limbo, paying carbon taxes, but not really having much of an opportunity to offset them. Although Aaron um, has been a large part of um, kind of doing some of the background analysis for Farmers for Climate Solutions um, pitching a bit of a budget uh, analysis to um, a Canada. Do you want to add to that, Aaron? Yeah. So there's there's a, a first just to back up a second. I think that uh, Ontario farmers have a little bit of a, diff a, a different advantage compared to those in say Alberta. Alberta had already sort of had some schemes in order. For example, conservation tillage was paying something like three to five dollars an acre. Um, for for carbon sequestration, that kind of thing, but it was possible. You see, I think you you hear or you hear of sort of stories of people selling to Coca Cola or whatever, some large company that's looking to engage in um, environmental services. 
different schemes, different people saying, okay, well, we've adopted this practice. It's sequestering this much carbon in the soil and then finding almost a private market to, to sell that on. So those opportunities do exist. They're just rare. And so kind of, I think what we're, we're waiting for, waiting to see is how that evolves sort of into something more constant. And sort of one thing additionally I've heard is that one of the important steps in that is going to be a certification mechanism. So something like a carbon credit has starts to gain much more value, especially internationally, if you can have something like the federal or provincial government saying this is the value of this carbon. So if you can have that kind of that kind of certification, that kind of um, backing, then all of a sudden you have something more tangible, I think, to trade in carbon markets. One thing we have seen, one initiative we've seen recently in the most recent federal budget was an investment of $200 million in essentially helping farmers to adopt cover cropping, uh, adopting 4R practices such as uh, rate reduction, uh, different timing techniques, precision agriculture, these kinds of things, and rotational grazing on cattle. So these kind of initiatives, there's a direct sort of mandate from the Ministry of Agriculture to Agriculture Agri-Food Canada to create or to spend this money, this $200 million, over a single, essentially one and a half budgetary years, bridging sort of to the next APF, to spend $200 million investing in getting farmers to adopt these practices. There's an additional $60 million that's also come out for setting aside high carbon value lands like shelter belts, different kinds of agricultural treed areas, uh, even woodlots, that kind of smaller scale forestry, but on agricultural land, and then uh, wetland preservation, for example. So, so, yeah, so I'm saying, so these initiatives are, are, are in our current budget and they're trying to spend the money right now. So, so, but it sounds like some of those things are a combination of reducing the burden of carbon tax by, by being more efficient but also laying the foundation of some carbon reduction practice or sequestration practices that will allow farmers to benefit from some of those practices in the future. So things like, and correct me if I'm wrong, well, for sure, shelter belts, quantifying shelter belts and wetlands and that sort of thing doesn't reduce my, my fuel consumption. Cover crops may or may not reduce my fuel consumption, but allow for improved soil health and improved soil sequ uh, carbon sequestration, which will lay a foundation for the potential to benefit from that later. So, so are you saying that those things in the current budget are kind of a combination of both? I would say that the current budget is really aimed at laying the foundation such that these practice be practices become normalized in the future. So I don't, I don't know. I think that the, <laughs> my impression is that recently budgetary spending has had a little bit of a, a, a revolution kind of involved with COVID-19, spending yeah. money for recovery in different ways. These kinds of big ticket $200 million on a few agricultural practices isn't probably something you would have seen as a single budgetary initiative uh, in any other time frame. So there is an aspect of, I guess, paying back that carbon effect that may be happening, the cost side. But it's really, I think, trying to lay the framework, lay the groundwork so that in the future, these practices become normalized. This kind of carbon sequestration becomes something that 
can be an active part of your farm management plan, your budget, these kinds of things. But I mean, I guess you can kind of talk about, you know, government incentives and these kinds of things too. Yeah. So, but, but it raises an interesting question. If the government is now investing in normalizing some of those practices, sort of, which is providing an incentive to undertake those practices, I guess. I mean, you talked about a couple of bucks an acre in 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 Alberta. Is it that sort of thing, or is it outreach and extension and education, or or how are they spending that money right now? So the current programs are designed as a combination of those things. Um, if you want to get into some of the nitty gritty, for example, the 4R practice design is essentially uh, it's going to be a cost share on agronomic services. So basically, you go to your agronomic advisor, you say, I need to update my nutrient management, my nitrogen management plan. What are the different ways that we can sort of move it forward into what what these 4R principles and essentially, it says it's offering roughly something like $8 a hectare on uh, this kind of nutrient management practice. So that's like, that's a significant portion uh, of the uh, of the amount you might spend on agronomic services. It's okay. Also... So, 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 and that, and that, some of that, one of those R's is reduction. So that might reduce your input costs and, and reduce the burden of carbon tax. Yes, that is true. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, this question just occurred to me, and you may not know the answer. Uh, was there a first mover disadvantage for some people who've already adopted some of these practices uh, and, and are now seeing other people get incentives to adopt them? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, I think some farmers are frustrated by it even. You get these farmers who maybe are quite innovative or kind of forward thinking have adopted maybe cover cropping or reduced nitrogen rates. And when these initiatives come out, they're typically for first time users because they want this idea of additionality. You want to have the most environmental impact per dollar spent, which is the kind of new users. So yeah, they may miss out on some of these new initiatives and future carbon markets they may possibly miss out on as well. How, how would they miss out on future carbon markets if they're undertaking them? Or is it just because they haven't been benchmarked beforehand? It's about baselines yes, like, and benchmarking. Yeah. yeah. So, so if you've been cover cropping for 10 years and all of a sudden you start baselining, you could be at a disadvantage to someone who starts this year. Theoretically. Although you hope that some program design initiatives will go into those things. <laughs> yeah. You, 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 per perverse incentives, right? You don't yeah. want someone to be like, I'm tearing up my whatever right now so that next year I can get a, a, a credit, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you don't want backsliding for sure, right? Like you say, these are perverse incentives. If, if, if I move backwards with the sole intention of setting a lower baseline and getting more credit, that becomes, that becomes important. I, I thought I'd ask a question. The, the The real hot button here is grain drying. You know, when grain is wet and we have to dry it, there's there's probably not a whole lot we can do. I mean, maybe there's some efficiency gains with higher efficiency dryers. And, you know, we're starting to hear things like electrical and, and other, uh, you know, I think even hydrogen cells I've seen. 
are, are some of these things just going to be more expensive to do because we are actually now reflecting the environmental costs of some of these uh, of some of these activities? That could very well be the case. Uh, and I think that that's okay in that sense. Although there's a little bit of a, te a tension, I guess, between uh, prairie and kind of eastern uh, farmers in that sense. Apparently, what I heard from one prairie farmer is that there was a bunch of drying capacity installed on the prairies sort of uh, in the mid parts of this decade. That basically his, his thing is, you're on the prairies, let it sit for a few days, it'll be nice and dry. Rather than, you know, just taking it off and putting it through the industrial process. So kind of in that way, it depends on where you are a little bit. In Ontario, I think that, that that's probably the case. Although, like you say, there could be technologies that increase efficiency. So, so it's so so. I think it remains interesting, and it gets back to maybe something that you guys don't work on as much. But I'd be interested in your perspective, and or you could tell me you don't have one. Is fundamentally, this isn't just about what farmers pay to produce this food. It is the fact that we're probably not paying enough to, for food to reflect the environmental costs of producing that food. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I don't think we pay the full cost of the environmental kind of impacts that come from farming. But it does, yeah, run into this maybe competitive issue is, you know, food prices, because Canada, Canadian farmers are price takers, food prices aren't going to increase with the raising carbon taxes if they're only increasing in, in Canada. Uh, I saw in your uh, in in some of the things that you've written, including the food focus, uh, the, the food focus piece, shameless self-promotion, that that notwithstanding some of the areas where being a first mover might have been a disadvantage, you highlighted that being up the curve on some of these technologies may be helpful, may provide an advantage. Why, why would that be? So I guess it has to do with the sort of the force of inevitability, whether you believe these, these climate actions are going to be something that is eventually becomes the kind of global initiative that we've sort of been seeking. So for example, the European Union may be ahead of Canada, but perhaps on the curve, we're probably somewhere similar to the United States. If in the future, uh, everyone in the world has to start paying these same increased costs of producing food, then Canada will then have already started to sort of uh, adapt the technology to lower their input costs, do the things that they can from that sort of sense. That could be a potential advantage in the long run, even though it will be not so in the short run. Being ahead and being better at it for when everyone's got to do it, then then we may ha at that point have a competitive advantage. It may also mean that Canada uh, is at the forefront of developing some of those technologies, which also creates both opportunity and economic activity. So uh, then in net net, I, I hear farmers saying we need help. We saw, as you said, Aaron, some help in the current budget. Are farmers going to be happier, or are we going to are are we going to still experience some pain in this transition? So I would say that. So one of I guess the problems is that these sort of initiatives, they add additional burden to farmers' sort of management capacity, right? Because in many ways, it's it, you're entering into new markets. You're now seeking funding for different uh, practices and initiatives. It, it does require your input. It does require an additional 
amount of labor in that sense. However, I don't, I, I mean, I think that that's sort of the future and it's also parts of the past too. So it's not necessarily something that will have a tremendous increased cost, but it's not free either sort of accessing uh, these uh, other services. But I mean, farmers are salesmen, farmers, are, they do all of these things. There's nothing wrong with these kinds of additional actions. It's just the question is, is it purely good? I don't think so. Um, at least not until it sort of becomes normalized. Okay, so so everyone's going to bear some of the cost of of carbon production. And because agriculture is relatively carbon intensive, I know I'll get all sorts of people complaining to me about that, but rel relatively carbon intensive. Agriculture may bear a disproportionate burden in the short term of that adaption. That's my view. Yeah. Long term, though, there are additional opportunities, and I'm not sure if, if, if you'll get to this in another one of your questions, um, is so it's like you sell carbon or, or are we looking at a future where you sell carbon on a market? Okay. So what other value does your farm area bring to the world in terms of environmental benefits? Are there habitat benefits? Are there other kinds of benefits that you can start to stack on top of the current ones that you're providing? Um, another question, I guess, kind of that's related is if you are accepting uh, money from the government of Canada or the government of your province to do a carbon provision, then you you own that carbon provision. You can sell that on a third on another market. You own some wildlife habitat. You can sell that on another market. These kinds of things start to become. You start to stack the potential credits that you can obtain from in, engaging in these environmental services markets. Mm -hmm. so, so, so so that 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 makes it that makes a ton of sense. And I was going to ask that question. So it was a good, a good job. But but to me. It's clearer where the market for carbon will come from, right? You'll have emitters looking to buy credits, and 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 that marriage makes makes a lot of sense. Habitat is or wetlands are more of a public good. Uh, there's no one out here sort of eating up. Well, there are, but there's no one out there eating up wetlands, and and someone saying I'm I'm adding or preserving wetlands. To, to me, that one is a is is a less clear market. Where where I can see it coming is not selling the. I I can see labeling coming where you'll get an you'll get a premium in the market rather than being able to sell a wetlands credit somewhere. You'll you'll say my farm is wetlands certified, and because of that, I will sell be able to sell to this and this buyer and and maybe get a premium. Am I just misinformed? Do you really think there will eventually be a market for sort of uh, for habitat beyond maybe government support for it? So habitat, I guess, it, it can be in that sense vacuous, but. You already see things like Ducks Unlimited Canada or the Nature Conservancy of Canada collecting money from their members and giving it back in order to preserve these kinds of things. The question is, how does Ducks Unlimited, for example, if they're not administering a government program for a wetland set aside, for example, how do they view you accepting money from the government of Canada and from Ducks Unlimited simultaneously for essentially providing a similar service? 
Yeah. How can we, are these services like divisible? Can we divide them in that sense? Yeah. And, and then who owns all of, all of those things? And I think that, that that'll be an interesting evolution of, of contract law probably coming into the future too, along with all these services. So, so the, my last question, and then I'm going to ask you if there's anything I missed, but my last question comes out of that one in that if I sell the fact that I, you know, I sell carbon credits, what happens if I backslide on the practices that, that I was getting, that I was getting credit for? So, you know, we talked about people who've historically done these practices you know, having perhaps a perverse incentive to reduce them just so that they could get a baseline and then build up again. But if I get here and I can sell those carbon credits and I sell them to someone, are are they a one-time sale or is it an annual sale or 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 does that depend on how the market evolves? And then suddenly I stop doing those practices. I take the money and run, if you will. How how do we how do we or am I making up a problem? No, that, that's definitely a huge problem. I mean, there's kind of like these three classic problems with carbon markets, permanence, leakage, and additionality. And permanence, kind of this idea of you rever reversing um, some of the practices is tackled a little differently across different carbon markets. Um, for example, I think um, Indigo Egg out of Boston, they require any carbon credits um, from farmers to be maintained for 100 years. So that's their... Um, assumption is that we maintain for 100 years. And there's various like accounting methods for this. You can kind of do a credit debit balance between carbon between years. And they kind of maintain this carbon in the soil. And then other markets maybe will have like a 30-year horizon, which I believe is what um, I've seen rumored um, for the Canadian market. It's maybe a 30-year horizon. But it's still one of the issues is if you reverse that carbon benefit, who pays for it? Will the farmer be kind of on the hook, and then you start asking questions like, what about rental land? What if you rent a land out and somebody wants to, like, how do you have these kind of landlord-tenant relationships? Um, and you've got a lot of very interesting and difficult questions. And I think that's maybe part of the reason carbon markets haven't come out in Canada is because of issues such as permanence. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, if you, if, if it's a, what, is it an annual payment or a one-time payment? Or is, is that, depend on the specific market too depends on the specific market i believe but you would want i think an annual payment as a farmer in that sense because you said okay i built it in the soil um it, it i mean it could become a, a weird uh blind spot i guess if you say okay i built it i built it up a year in the soil and i mean it's it's negligible it's hard to measure but say we assume averages and all these things and you say okay it was uh, two tons in my soil this year. I sold it for 20 bucks a ton. I collected $40. But then I just changed my practice the next year. But I still got to keep the $40 because nobody really knows. It, it was built up. But now, because I'm a small emitter, I don't have to pay for emitting two tons, right? So uh, there's the potential, I guess, to work the system that way. But, I mean, I, I feel like you hope that one of the other things that kind of goes into these practices is we hope that they're beneficial practices in general on their own merits, ones that would be adopted even without the sort of incentives. Therefore, you build this carbon over time. I think the other problem that comes in is that 
there's a steady state balance that you build towards, right? So you can only build carbon for 20 years or 30 years until you hit a plateau again, right? Yeah. So if we're at like, if we're at zero, it's not zero, but if we're low, we can only build to a certain amount and then hit this plateau. So 20 to, it's a problem for 20 to 30 years from now, but nonetheless could present present potential future problems with the whole yeah. system. And, 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 and from a farm perspective, you said they might prefer to get an annual payment, but if I'm a, if I'm doing something, I'd prefer a lump sum payment. And the, and the risk becomes that I stop, I, I make a 30 year commitment to Dan's point. I make a 30 year commitment uh, and then I stop doing it after five years, but I've already spent that money. How, how are you going to get it back from me? So, so to, to me, the punchline is here, we, we see some direct and tangible costs to farmers in the short term that will climb as the as as the the carbon tax increases we see some concrete actions by uh, governments to help farmers make those adaptations and we we see an evolving but not there yet augmentation to the revenue side that will help them offset the costs of some of these practices. And in fact, perhaps in the long run, generate positive revenue over and above those costs. Is that kind of what the vision is? I would say that sums it up pretty succinctly. One of the interesting things is the price on carbon. I think we didn't really speak about this explicitly, just how it's going up to $170 a ton by 2030. Whereas, so if we look at a bunch of programs now that have to do with selling carbon, like the one in um, Alberta, the equivalent carbon price was something like 20. And that was giving you something like two to five or four, whatever uh, dollars per acre. Now you bump it up to 170. Now you're starting to get a much more significant sort of return on that value to carbon. So there's, there's also the the ramping up effect of, of the price of carbon that has to do with sort of the future looking potential benefits of, of entering into this carbon trading market. Okay. So th there's lots still to be figured out. And, and, and I hadn't thought about this issue of, you know, at some point we get to capacity and do we then pay people to continue to store it? We, we can't pay them to sequester more. But do we do we you, we can't continue to have offsets because I've offset up to my capacity? Then do we then hope that those practices are well in, in, ingrained and and people don't backslide, or do we have to sort of pay kind of a maintenance? Have we thought about where we end up in thirty years or a hundred years or whenever we get to those to the capacity of sequestration? I mean, I can't speak to kind of like these, you know, maintenance fees in the future, but I think one thing that maybe is interesting to note is the kind of impacts that climate change might have on growing conditions. You know, in 30, 40 years, farmers might be more inclined to retain this soil carbon or higher levels of um, like soil organic matter because they'll need it to help kind of mitigate maybe poor growing conditions. So it's... I mean, that's, that's kind of banking on this fact that, you know, the private value of some of these practices will increase over time. I'm under the impression that in a lot of regions, um, the private value will increase over time to some of these things. However, I think you still have a, yeah, a very good point that, you know, 
how do we maintain this in the future? That's an so, interesting point too, because it, it kind of goes to, can you sell it as a lump sum early? Because you actually don't know with weather being just an intervening factor in general, necessarily how much carbon you're going to build from year to year. Yeah. So at most, you'd be doing an estimate for a 30-year period. And that's why in some ways, maybe it makes more sense to sell it annually. If, I mean, it makes more sense for the buyer to buy it annually necessarily than the farmer to sell it that way. I, I tend to agree with you, uh, Aaron. But on the flip side of that, if I'm building, if I'm a buyer of carbon credits, it's because I'm because I'm an emitter, right? And and in general, emitters aren't like farmers where they can make annual decisions, which which may affect both their sequestration and their emissions. You know, if I'm building a large steel plant or something, I'm not sure that that there's an advantage to me to go to the market annually. And in fact, we may see in the long term that they have to have an offset plan. And so from a risk management perspective, if not from a regulatory perspective, they might have to have those carbon credits in place to start with, notwithstanding the fact that that they are hopefully also doing things to reduce their emissions over time. I mean, you'll probably see complex structures like you'll have futures markets that will deal with large emitters, what they need to buy and people selling, you know, like different things uh, in the short term. So it'll so, be interesting. So, so to me, to me, this is a really going to be an interesting, an, an interesting few years as we, you know, I think, Dan, you made the point that that the delay in, in establishing some of these markets may be in unwinding some of these complexities and figuring out what the best way to structure them is. Before we wind up, guys, is there anything I should have asked you and didn't or a final point you want to make? I guess one thing that I thought was kind of interesting coming out of some of this, and it has to do with some of the tracking, Mike, you were talking about some of the labeling, how some of this might be handled. I think you might see, it's one of, I guess it's a popular thing to talk about these days, but it's something like a blockchain approach or something like that might end up, you might be able to parcel down all of the farm fields in the country into essentially some kind of NFT or some kind of blockchain tracked um, thing. It's like, so the carbon on this has already been sold. It's been sold for 30 years, blah, 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 these kinds of uh, expiry things. That may also then create sales value. I mean, I never thought that I would see advertising on TV for a burger in which a farmer is holding a handful of soil and talking about root health and, and things like that which we are starting to see now. So clearly there are companies out there thinking that they're, that they're getting value and they're buying products from farmers who are doing sort of carbon friendly practices. So they may be able to sell the carbon credits, but also get a benefit in terms of revenue. It, it'll be interesting to see, but again, will have to be based on a, whether it's blockchain or some other clearly easy to track and transparent valuation. So we don't have guys or girls selling the, the carbon credit four or five times to, to, <laughs> to different people. Anything from you, Dan, uh, just to, to wrap up? No, I can't, I can't say so. I mean, maybe I guess a question you could ask and not that I have an answer to, but you know, is our, our carbon markets and carbon sequestration, is that the, best kind of approach 
Um, there are alternative approaches and people have been pretty excited about carbon markets. Um, some people have been calling it, you know, the gold rush for farming. Um, and are we overselling it maybe? Are some of these issues that, you know, we've kind of brought up with permanence and stuff, are some of those issues maybe too big to tackle? And, you know, should we even be looking at this? I'm not saying one thing one way or another, but maybe something just to, you know, think about. Well, and, 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 and I think, you know, sort of a, a closing thought for me then is, is while I understand exactly why we're doing all of this and, and, and it makes sense to me, I, I can understand some of the unease that some farmers might be feeling because we haven't worked out quick completely on the on the revenue side, on the on the carbon trading side, whereas we see a pretty clear vision of what's happening on the cost side. Uh, and, and so uh, there's probably some some degree of urgency to figure this out to keep to keep people in agriculture happy. Okay, well, guys, that was uh, that was amazing. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, I look forward to chatting again. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having us. That wraps up another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We very much appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you just discovered Food Focus, you can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review. It helps others find us. Before we go, I want to thank my producer, Zach, for his hard work in making each episode sound good and for his original music that helps us transition. He does the hard work and we get to have all of the fun. Thanks. Have a great day.